Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am thrilled you have joined with me today, as today's episode is the first installment of responding to your questions. And so if you've been with us from the beginning, you know that when I launched the podcast, I invited all of you uh, who listen to send in questions and for you to be the ones who create the content. And many of you have done just that, so thank you so much. And you may be listening thinking, wait a second, I have some thoughts or I have some questions or maybe you have some resources that you want to share. So how do I let you know about them? And if you're asking that question, it is a fantastic question. And so you can do that a couple of ways. You can email me. Uh, My email address is michael at michael-hidalgo.com. You can also head over to my website, which is michael-hidalgo.com. And uh, you can email me through the website. You can also sign up to receive updates on what's going on through the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast there, and uh, which means you don't ever have to wonder when the next episode is going to drop because it will appear in your inbox and you are one click away from listening. So just before we jump into today's content, uh, just know that in the coming weeks, I have a bit of travel both in and out of the country which means that there may be a delay before the next podcast drops in a couple of weeks, but not to worry. I will work hard to ensure it gets posted as soon as I can while in the midst of travel. It's actually an interview that I do with some friends of mine from Portland about a wonderful story that they shared with me that I wanted to share with all of you. But today, today is about your questions. I should actually say uh, your question because it's the one question I am often asked. In fact, over the last three weeks, uh, both through email and in conversations, both on the phone and uh, in, in over lunch with people, I've been asked this question uh, more than a half a dozen times. And the question is about criticism. Now, truth be told, I was going to respond on this episode to multiple questions that you've asked Uh, And then I started plotting my response to all of the questions regarding criticism, and I realized like it became its own episode. And so that is today's episode, is responding to criticism. And, And so the questions with all the questions that I get regarding criticism, they ultimately boil down to this. And the question is, how do you deal with criticism? What do you do with criticism? How do you deal with it? And one of the things that people have said in asking this question is they say, you know, I've noticed that you draw a lot of criticism, which for one reason or another, it's, it's true. And the assumption often is, uh, when people ask, and I've learned this by, um, kind of digging into why they're asking the question, the assumption is like somehow I've learned how to deal with criticism. I've kind of got it nailed. And, And so let me just, um, point out right at the very beginning, I'm always in process, like all of us, always in process of growing and learning more helpful ways of understanding those who criticize and how to hold the criticism that does come my way. So it's not true that I've learned, past tense, learned how to deal with criticism. I'm continually in the process of learning uh, how to respond to it and deal with it in more healthy ways all the time. And keep in mind, my process will look different in the years to come because I'm growing like all of us. And so all I can do today is tell you uh, how I'm responding to criticism right now today. And so to do that, I'm going to frame today's conversation into eight observations. Yes, eight observations. And so we're going to reflect on pain and avoidance, doing and being, knowing what others know, looking forward and looking backward, golf clubs and tennis rackets, sticks and stones, dramatic readings of emails, and finally, seeing the critic. Eight observations on how to respond to criticism. So the first one, pain and avoidance. One of the recent conversations I had uh, regarding criticism um, was over lunch, and this person said to me, well, how does criticism not bother you? And I replied, well, what makes you think 
criticism doesn't bother me. And I start right here because there is a belief that some people fly above any and all criticism. They're untouched by it, but I'm not so sure that is true. Now, there are people out there who say, well, I'm not bothered by critics. I'm not bothered by criticism. And that may be true. However, everyone that I know is bothered at some level, which is exactly why we asked the question of others, how do you respond to it? Because we're all realizing that, that somehow it bothers, bothers us. It does something to us. Now, I know several people who receive far more criticism than me. And even with them, they're so much further down the road. And yet I, I notice it always seems to hit a nerve somewhere. In some ways, one of the reasons I'm asked about dealing with criticism so often is because, it, like I said, it does bother us. And it's possible that if we ever get to a point where criticism of any kind or every kind doesn't bother us at all, it's possible we may not be living in an entirely honest way. So yes, criticism can be and is often bothersome. And I have had uh, people criticize me in ways that have even been hurtful, and I'll get onto that later. Um, and when it comes to this kind of criticism and how it bothers us, I know people who pretend to shrug off criticism. And in doing so, they tell critics where they can go and they give very explicit directions on how they can get there. Uh, I've heard people say things like, well, I'll put them in their place, talking about their critics. And what I'm learning is when someone responds with really harsh words or really def like a defensive attitude to criticism, when people go on the attack against their critics, it's often because whatever the criticism was, it actually really did bother them greatly. It bothered them enough for them to go on the attack. And so we have some people who say, well, it doesn't bother me at all. Some people who go on the attack. And then there's others um, who, who fixate on criticism. I have friends who they will bring up the criticism they receive all the time. I have one friend that every time I'm in conversation with them, I find that they're repeating back to me, oh, did you hear about what so-and-so said about this? Or did you see the comments on this? And what I'm noticing is often this can happen because they want to be told they are okay. They want to be told that they are loved. They want to be told that their work is good, on and on. Now, I know of these things because at one time or another, I've been guilty of doing one or all or a combination of them. Uh, criticism, not all the time, but some criticism can cause pain. And we have all kinds of ways of avoiding it. And say, we can say it's no big deal. We can ignore it altogether. We can fixate on it. We can go on the attack. Um, but what I'm learning is that the best thing we can do is hold it and see what it has to teach us about ourselves, about our work, and really about people in general. I recently uh, had a friend come and speak with me and and she told me how I made an off-the-cuff comment during one of my sermons. Uh, and in doing so, I really hurt um, a person who is a part of our church here in Denver. And my friend came and she was really direct. Her criticism was very pointed. And I'll be honest with you, it totally sucked. Like it's really sucked hearing this criticism. And all the temptations were there. I could have gotten defensive and excused it. Well, you don't understand. That's not what I meant, right? I, I could have said, well, okay, well, whatever. Sorry that they were wounded. Um, I, I could have fixated on it and thought, why would you ever do that? Don't you realize how bad you hurt them? Um, but what I did is I listened and I began, I found myself asking her questions, trying to understand more deeply what I did and how my words hurt somebody else. And as I listened, I was able to consider how many times um, in my sermons I make off-the-cuff comments, off-the-cuff comments that actually can and do at times injure other people. And so as much as the criticism, it, 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 there's just a kind of a rub to it, you know? And there is always the temptation to avoid, but, but this time I said, no, I don't want to avoid this criticism. This is from a friend. This is from someone I trust. And in doing so, I went into it 
And by going into it and, and being curious about it, I actually learned something about the way that I speak and the way that I communicate. So even if the criticism given is mean-spirited, even if it can come across as unfair, even if someone's intending to wound you, that doesn't mean we always have to toss it out because it's always an opportunity for all of us to reflect on who we really are, which is so much more than the criticism we receive. And this brings us to the second observation, doing and being. Several years ago, uh, I wrote and released my first book. It's titled Unlost, Being Found by the One We Are Looking For. And I can tell you, I put so much mental energy into worrying about how the book would be received. In so many ways, a piece of me, and it was, felt like a big piece of me at the time, was tied to the outcomes of this book. And when I finished the final draft and the book was going to print, um, I was just, I felt racked with anxiety and I had a conversation with a friend who had already written and published a few books. And so we, we sat down together and he said, so how are you feeling? And I was just this like ball of nerves. I told him about my anxiety and my worry and I, I was obsessing over the outcomes and what if this fails and what if this succeeds and all of these things that were swirling in my head. And he just listened to me, he had like this little smirk on his face and I'm prattling on for a while. And, and so then he, when I finished, he just said, uh, so is that book everything you are? And I was, I, I honestly was caught off guard by the question. I was like, what? what you, is the book everything you are? And he said, are you your book? And then I was like, well, of course not. He then said, right, exactly. That book is your work. And sure, that comes out of what you're learning and that work comes out of how you think and how you craft communication, but it's only your work. And you are not your work. You are not what you do. That is not your identity. And those words hit me so deeply. His words have actually stayed with me since that time. And I think they're important for us too. Because here's the deal. Nothing we do is perfect. This is like a mantra that some of us need to adopt. I have to adopt it. Like, Nothing I do is perfect. It's not going to be perfect. And I have those perfectionist tendencies where I want it to be just right. But nothing we do is perfect because we are all human. Bob Dylan used to talk about when he would produce records and that there would always be mistakes in them. And he was asked once, doesn't this bother you? I mean, there's mistakes in the recordings and the albums that you put out. And he said, no, of course it doesn't bother me. If, if our albums were perfect, that makes them less human. And then if they come out perfect, when people show up and hear us at a live show, they will actually think that our live shows are terrible because they don't sound like the albums because the live show is never perfect. And so, yes, of course they're imperfect. We're human. And more importantly, we need to remember that nothing that we actually do, nothing that we produce, none of our work is who we are fully. It's been said time and time again, and I think it's worth repeating. We are human beings, not human doings. And so holding this in mind, when people criticize our work, sure, it's work that we've put in hours of time and thought and energy and creativity and passion, but it's not who you are. It's not who I am. And since this is the case, there then it becomes, there's this distance that allows us not to internalize criticism. You see, my anxiety about my first book existed because I allowed too much of my identity to get wrapped up in the book. No, that book is not who I am and your work is not who you are. And this is important to recognize, not only with regard to criticism, but also actually with regard to praise. Because if we experience wild success and people come around us and say, oh, you're so great and your book is so great and your work is so great, we can, in much the same way, tie our sense of self to that kind of praise. We'll end up with inflated egos and inflated attitudes. And I can tell you, I have to be really careful about how I receive 
uh, gratitude and praise from people because in some ways it can mess with our heads the same way criticism can. It can give us a sense of our false selves that now what we do, what we can produce, that becomes who we are and that makes us either good and or bad, successful or a failure. And so if we don't create a distance between our work and our identity, it can mess with us in all sorts of ways. But if we create that distance, then whether it's a wild raving success and people are praising us nonstop, or whether it's a total miserable failure and people are criticizing us, or if it's successful and people are criticizing, or if it's a failure and people are praising, all those combinations, if we can have that distance then we can hold criticism out there and allow it to make our work better without internalizing all those things. We need to remember our story begins in Genesis 1 at the end of the poem that talks about the creator God. And it begins with us as image bearers, us bearing the divine image, us as the Celtic tradition says, having the divine spark within us. And it's only then when we are told who we are, what our identity is, it's only when we received our identity that we are invited to join God in his ongoing work in the world. Identity comes first, then our work. And so holding who we are and what we do in their proper place is tremendously helpful when it comes to criticism, which of course raises the question, Okay, great. So how do I do that well? Because if you're anything like me or anything like anyone else or anything like everyone else I know, you know that it's really hard to hold who we are and what we do uh, at their proper distance. And one of the ways I've learned to hold these things in their proper place is recognizing I cannot do this alone. We need to know what others know. This is our third observation, knowing what others know. And what I've experienced is that it's really difficult uh, to have a proper sense of self to hold my right identity if I'm in isolation. I need other people around me to help me in this process. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced all of us do. Uh, we as human beings, we are wired for connection. We are, we are meant to be in close relationship to other people. It's vitally important. And knowing what they know about you is priceless. Having people around you who will speak with love and with grace and with truth, both good things and hard things, is deeply needed. If the only people you have around you are people who are always telling you how great you are, you need new friends. Uh, and, and likewise, if the only people you have around you are telling you what a failure you are, you need new friends. You need people who will embrace you, not in spite of all your faults, but will embrace you with them and have enough love and courage to walk with you as you grow in those things that you right now look at and don't like very much. We need those kinds of people. I mentioned writing my first book and all my anxiety around it, uh, and my wife was keenly aware of the, by the way, of, of where my mind was, just filled with worry. And so the day that my book was released, she planned a dinner date for us, which was awesome. So we went to one of our favorite restaurants and uh, there was a table that we normally sit at. So we walked in and they grabbed the menus and they walked back toward our table, but they kept walking past the table and then they started walking toward the back. And I'm like, what are they, what are they doing? Maybe there's a dining room I don't know anything about. And indeed there was a dining room I didn't know anything about. And little did I know, my wife had planned a surprise party for me. And we walked into this back room and several of our closest friends in the world were there. And they weren't there to say, congrats on writing the book. They made it really clear, we're here because we love you. Uh, and they gave me a gift, not only of their presence and their friendship, but they gave me a gift that night. And it was a picture of all of us uh, and they're all standing around me and beneath the picture in this frame, there's a quote from one of my favorite movies called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and in that quote, it says, no man is a failure who has friends. Oh, uh, I, I can tell you that in that moment, the weight 
uh, of all the anxiety and the worry, they fell off me. Um, because I was with people who, if the book failed, succeeded, if the book had never been written or if it went on to be a New York Times bestseller, they didn't care. Uh, they were there to say, we love you. And, and this is important because when criticism comes, uh, sometimes it's really hard to know how to hold it. Sometimes it hurts because it's needed criticism. Sometimes it meets us where we are. Sometimes we need to just throw it out. Uh, but in the moments when we're trying to figure out what to do with criticism, there are times where we can feel stuck, times when we go, I don't know what to do with this. And that's where we can invite in our friends and our loved ones who will speak honestly. And, and we can say to them, help me reflect on this. And we can know what they know about ourselves. Because they may say, no, actually, you need to stop reading that. That's crap. Throw it out. Other people, they might, no, this person's onto something. It's actually something I've wanted to speak with you about. Bring those people in so that we can know what they know. Fourth observation, looking forward and looking backward. There is a uh, very helpful theory of human development called Spiral Dynamics. It was developed in the 1960s by a fellow named Claire Graves. Uh, if you've not, by the way, if you've not heard of Spiral Dynamics, it's well worth looking up, researching, and learning about. There's a great book called Spiral Dynamics, Mastering Values, Leadership, and Change by Don Beck and Chris Cowan. Um, and it's so incredibly helpful. And there's one part of it specifically that I found very helpful with regard to criticism. And it talks about the way that we view others on the path of life or on the road of human development or in the developing human consciousness, however you want to say it. Uh, and in this, this observation they make, I'm learning really often happens at a, at a subconscious level. It's not something we're doing purposefully. And, and this is what their observation is. They say, when we perceive someone to be further down the road than us or at a higher level of development than us, we often look forward with fear. We look at where they are and say, that's dangerous. That's not helpful. This is crazy. They're, they're headed in a bad direction. And likewise, when we perceive someone to be further back from us or at a lower level of development, we can look backward with disdain. So think of it this way. How many times have you witnessed, uh, whether it's an author or maybe a pastor or a podcaster or a combination of all of those things, <laughs> speaking uh, or communicating about faith, religion, spirituality. And this author or pastor or podcaster speaking and sharing, communicating, and somebody comes along, and sometimes these are people who've interacted very little with their work, and they call the author or pastor or podcaster, they, they say, oh, that person's a heretic. Oh, this person is so misguided. Uh, this person, th they're dangerous. I recently um, heard a pastor speaking about uh, the New Testament theologian and author N.T. Wright. And he said, N.T. Wright is N.T. wrong. And people cheered. He was preaching at a church. And I'm like, that. okay, r really? Um, but what, what he's doing there is he's stirring up fear. He, he's looking at somebody who's down the road and he's responding in fear. He, and so often people in this place, they go on a full-scale attack of someone that they perceive to be dangerous or bad or heretic or whatever. And if you've seen this sort of thing, you may wonder, man, why do they get so angry? And it's likely because they are, in fact, looking forward with fear. It's been said anger is fear or pain coming out. And by the way, it works the other way too. Maybe you've witnessed an author, a pastor, or a podcaster speaking or communicating about faith, religion, spirituality, and someone comes along while also interacting very little with their work, and they call the author, pastor, or podcaster narrow-minded or short-sighted. Their criticism has an explicit roll of the eyes, doesn't it? I was actually just with a group of pastors a few weeks ago, and one of them was talking about um, an insight that they had regarding Scripture. And somebody in the group said, oh, that's really good. Where did you get that? And they said, well, I was reading a book by so-and-so, and they named the author. And this group of pastors who had been really interested in this insight immediately sat back and said, oh, please, you probably shouldn't tell anybody that you're reading that. Why would you read him? And just shredded this person 
because they perceived him to be further back. They looked back with disdain. And I thought to myself, wait, 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 he's got some, he's got some really good things to say. I don't know that we should just be so dismissive, but, but if you've seen this sort of thing, you sense, um, just kind of like a lot of condescension. Condescension, by the way, means talk down to you. (laughs) One of my favorite jokes of all time, but we have this condescending attitude because we look backward with disdain. So when criticism comes your way and you sense that it's laced with condescension or with anger, it's helpful to recognize the unconscious attitude that the critic may actually be holding toward you. And it helps us see that this is about their process and not necessarily where we are because they may not be viewing your work in a way that's entirely fair and their criticism may be misguided, which brings us to the fifth observation, golf clubs and tennis rackets. A friend and mentor of mine said to me not long ago, uh, I was getting criticized particularly about something that I had written and something, uh, some decisions we had made. And, and he just said, Hey, listen, man, they're criticizing your golf swing and you're playing tennis. How, great is that? Because it's possible um, those who criticize may not actually grasp or see or understand, or frankly, they may not care about the work that you're putting out there and what you are doing. So all they can do is criticize what you're not doing um, because they're, they're not actually tapping into what you're actually meaning to do and put out into the world. Uh, when I launched the Changing Faith podcast, I talked uh, on our very first episode, I talked about how this, um, my hope was that this would serve as a next step for people who feel like they are in a space between. Those who've left the faith they grew up with, those who've set out from their tribe of origin, those who still hold their faith deeply, but have kind of slipped the moorings. Uh, like one friend of mine talked about like being out of the harbor, feeling a little bit of drift, unsure where they will land. That's who this podcast is for. Now, That doesn't mean that you're not in that place. You have to stop listening to the podcast. Um, But it's interesting. I know some people who are down the road from me. These are people I greatly respect and greatly admire. And I'm fully aware this podcast may not be helpful for them. And they may see or listen to this podcast and think, man, whatever. Like, this is not helping me get anywhere. Well, of course it's not. It's not for you. I'm not creating this podcast for you. Now, I don't say that to be mean. I say that because I'm very specific. I know the kind of person I want to speak toward. And so if someone's down the road for me, they can criticize it, but there's a chance they may be missing what I'm trying to do here. So I can hear their criticism. I can accept it. I can use it to make me better, but there's a chance they're criticizing something that we're not actually doing. They're criticizing the golf swing you're hitting a forehand on the tennis court. Likewise, I've been criticized by people who are not in the space between. People who are still in a place where they are compelled to hold on to the faith they grew up with and and identify with their tribe of origin. And the same thing can happen. They they can look at me and, and think, well, this is not what you should be doing. And they're talking about it in their frame of reference, in their context, and they're missing exactly what I'm trying to do. Which means I can recognize they're pointing at my work and criticizing it. One recent email um, I received criticized the way I viewed the Bible. They called me misguided and they said, you're like outside the bounds of the way we, talking about their tribe, reads the Bible. And I thought, yeah, exactly. I know. Um, And there was an assumption that that I saw in this criticism about what I was intending to do but they, they were wrong. It's not what I'm actually intending to do. And it held little weight because they were criticizing my golf swing. And when this happens, we, we need to pay attention to this because we can hold the criticism and we can do so with an understanding of how the critic views us while being aware at the same time of what we are actually out there doing. And if those two things, the viewpoint of the critic and what we are trying to do, do not line up, The good news is we don't have to hold that criticism very long. We can honor it. We can see if it has anything to offer us. And we can also dismiss it 
and listen to more helpful criticism that will make us better on the tennis court. Now, observation six, sticks and stones. There's the, uh, the kids rhyme that I'm sure you've heard. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Allow me to criticize that. It's crap and it's not true, right? Uh, names hurt. Uh, and the reality is we live in a world today where people armed with a keyboard, they feel permission to unleash on others with whom they disagree. Uh, I have been called everything over the digital medium of email and the wonderful world of Facebook. I, I've been called a coward. Uh, I've been called a jerk, an idiot, ignorant, arrogant. My, my all-time favorite was I was called a lousy tree hugger, which I... <laughs> Uh, I didn't know if that meant like I wasn't good at hugging trees or that I was lousy and a tree hugger. Anyway, I've been, I've, I've heard it all. Uh, the illustrious list of names is long and varied and, um, it's hard as much as I joke about it. I'm probably laughing. So I don't cry. Right. It, it's hard in those moments, not to return the unkind words, at least for me. Uh, I'm a fighter. Um, and so it's really hard for me not to just unleash something on them but we all know that doesn't do any good. As soon as I start calling them names, I've become like them. Um, so a few things that I'm learning about people uh, who want to call names, about sticks and stones. Uh, first, when they're name calling, it's not criticism. It's an attack. Okay? Uh, I don't do name calling. I don't do cutting accusations. Not now, not ever. I fully understand we get frustrated. God knows I get frustrated, especially when I'm driving, by the way. Um, I understand that we may not feel heard, but name-calling and insulting are never okay. Just a few weeks ago, I mentioned driving. I was in a car, in my car. There was a car in front of me and another car in front of them that was just stopped in the middle of the road. Uh, we're talking city streets, very narrow, cars parked on either side. No one can get around this big truck that's that's stopped. And so the car in front of me is not honking, not doing anything. And I'm finally like, after like three minutes, I'm thinking, okay, you know what? Beep, beep. So I honk my horn. I did the double beep. You know, the polite one, like, hey, buddy, like beep, beep, not the long, drawn out beeping. So I beep and the car that's sitting still pulls over a bit and doesn't really get around. And so I beep again. And finally, the car that's between me and the car that stopped manages to like work its way around the car and stops. So now there's two cars blocking the road. So I'm like, what, what is going on? By this time, by the way, I've, I've lost my patience. Okay. We're not going to, I'm not going to try to make myself look good here. <laughs> Just losing my patience. So I beep again. And so then the person that was in the car between me and the car that was stopped starts flipping me off. Now I should probably have told you this at the beginning, but I'm on my way to pick up my son from school. And so we're in the neighborhood where the school is. And lo and behold, this car that's with this woman that's flipping me off, pulls off to the pickup lane. And now there's this awkward thing of I've honked, she's flipped me off. So I just decided we need to talk. <laughs> so I drive up next to her and roll down my window and she leans out the window with her both middle fingers blaring and screams, you're an a-hole. And at that point I thought, okay, something else is going on here. So something in me, like something overcame me. And I just said to her, why are you so mad? Why are you so angry that you're saying this to my face? This is clearly not about me honking my horn back there. And it was the most fascinating thing. She screamed at me because no one is listening to me. Isn't this interesting? So her and I actually had a great conversation that ended up with me apologizing and her in tears. It was wonderful. And I, I point that out because when, when we see people angry, it might be helpful to sit back and go, huh, I wonder why they are so frustrated. Maybe they're like that woman in the car. No one is listening to me. And while we can say, yes, name calling and insulting are never okay and we don't have to deal with that, we can also begin to develop empathy and compassion saying, I wonder what's making them so angry. So keep that in mind. Second thing when it comes to name calling, by the way, we don't have to engage in that kind of behavior. Okay. So when someone starts calling me names, um, I've just chosen, I don't fire back. I just walk away from the conversation. 
Um, there's a wonderful feature on Facebook that when I'm on there, if somebody's calling me names or someone texts me and is like, dude, you should see this guy, Brian from Missouri, he is lighting you up. Um, I just block them. I recently had a guy, um, refer to my father's country, um, quoting our president saying like Cuba is a shithole country. And I just said, okay, no, we're not doing that. Um, that that's not okay. You cannot talk about my father's country that way. So blocked him done. It's, it's, we don't need to entertain this kind of thing. Um, for, for people who are mean and people who insist on being mean, you can mute them on Twitter. You can block them. You can shut it down. You can um, like put their email in your spam folder, whatever it is. You don't need to engage that kind of behavior. Yes, we can have compassion and understand, but we don't need to engage them. When I receive letters in the mail that don't have a name, um, I trash them without even reading it. Literally open the letter, turn it around. If there's no name, I throw it in the trash can. Um, our teaching pastor, her name is Amanda uh, several months back, she saw me open a letter and look at it and throw it in the trash can. And she said, what, what are you doing? I said, it's not signed. And she was like, you just throw it away? I said, yeah, because typically if people are praising you, they're going to sign their name. Um, if people want to just destroy you or say something mean, say something unkind, criticize you, they, they don't sign their name. And I, I throw those things away because any communication that's anonymous does not honor me or the person who sent it. And it does not allow us to speak with respect and kindness and move forward together. You don't have to engage that. I know I keep saying it. You don't have to engage it. Uh, not long ago, I received another handwritten letter. This one was signed. Um, and I got about three paragraphs in and I realized, oh my goodness, this person, that, by the way, this is someone I know very well. They were shredding me. Uh, the writer of the letter made all kinds of assumptions about my heart and my motives. They labeled me. They called me names. Um, and so before even finishing it, I threw it in the trash and then I emailed the person and said, Hey, if you'd like to seek understanding, if you want to ask questions, uh, by the way, we hadn't even spoken about what they were criticizing me about. They just kind of unleashed on me. I said, I, I'd love to hear you out, um, face to face, but I'm not going to entertain needless attacks. So when it comes to sticks and stones, when it comes to observation number six, keep in mind, we do not need mean-spirited attacks. We do not need name-calling. We need to move beyond presumption and stinging accusation, okay? It sets the whole thing up to be nothing more than a defended conversation. You are better than that. You don't need to do that to people and you deserve more respect than somebody calling you names. They do nothing to help anyone grow. It's predicated on a win-lose situation. I think we can move uh, forward and do better and move toward a win-win. So enough on that one. I think I've said enough. Um, okay, set observation seven, dramatic readings of emails. Uh, I received more than my fair share of nasty emails. And by the way, every pastor I know um, has received their fair share of nasty emails. Um, and I, again, I get it. It's easy to do um, because typically we sit down, we're angry, and we just write out all this stuff. And if you have done that, before you send it, give it a day and just reread it. But when I do receive the emails like that, and especially when it's from someone I know, someone with whom I have a relationship, I reply and tell them immediately, hey, I don't think email is the best way to carry on this conversation. It's not the best medium for communication. So love to have a conversation with you face-to-face. -face. Most of the time, the sender of the email will agree to that. Now, a pastor friend of mine years ago told me about something that he does in these kind of situations. He told me that when they meet face-to-face, uh, -face, he hands the sender of the email a printout of the nasty email and asks them to read it out loud so they can both be on the same page as they resume the conversation. So I've adopted this policy. This is what I do. And to this day, there has not been one time that the person has gotten through the entire email. There was this one time a couple sent me an email that was nasty, actually one of the nastiest emails they ever received, which was shocking because I knew them. And so they came and saw me and I handed them the, the paper and said, okay, hey, can you read this? Well, apparently the husband had written it and the husband got about midway through the second paragraph and he started off reading it. And then his pace started to slow because he, he knew he was getting to like the real nasty stuff. And finally he just stopped and like 
put the paper down in his lap and his wife looked at me. It was just this weird pause, this kind of awkward pause. And she said, um, I don't think we realize how this sounded. Exactly. They didn't realize how it sounded. And yet in reading it, they realized, my goodness, this is, this is vicious. Now, every single time I have done this, every single time we've done a dramatic reading of an email, um, it ends up opening great conversation because what it does, it allows that they come in looking at me going, you are hundred percent wrong. Like they're on this moral crusade. Oftentimes, then they read the email and they realize, Oh, uh, we're not entirely right in this process. Are we? And it opens really wonderful conversation because we've named the wrong, whatever wrong I've done and whatever wrong they've done. And we're able to move forward. And so now we're kind of like both on the same level. We're on the same playing field. There's not this sense where they're coming in over and above me or I'm coming in over and above them. We can sit and talk. And with that particular couple, um, what I found out is that they had actually been hurt by several different pastors and leaders. And so their words of attack on me came from a place of hurt, came from a place of mistrust, came from a place of unresolved anger. And all of that got pointed at me all because actually of a conversation they thought I had had with someone, a conversation, as it turns out, that never actually happened. And we got to dig into their pain that had been caused them by so many different pastors. And see, when we can come together that way, helping others see what words on the screen sound like when spoken out loud, it is so helpful. And I encourage you, maybe this is on Facebook, you get a comment from someone and you're like, what the heck, man? Like we're friends. Do this with them. Bring, bring your phone to them and say, I need you to read this out loud. You have to hear how this sounds. Maybe it's on Twitter, whatever medium it is, have them read it out loud to you in front of you um, because it helps you see the critic. Uh, it helps the critic see you. It helps you see one another. And in my experience, it has almost always moved toward growth. And that brings us to our final observation on today's episode of the Changing Faith Podcast, and that is seeing the critic. Now, as easy as it is to criticize someone and do so in a faceless and nameless way, um, it's also easy to be on the other end of the criticism and to demonize our critics and do so in a faceless and nameless way. But what I'm learning is to lean in and move a little bit closer toward the critics who offer criticism. And I do that to see not only what they are saying it, but why they are saying it. Because if we can understand why they say what they say, again, there's a chance here for growth. So with that said, at the risk of of oversimplifying this, I want to suggest that there's really two kinds of critics, maybe two categories of critics we could say. Uh, There's those who are self-centered and there's those who are other-centered. Those who just want to air their opinion, those who want to be heard or at their worst, they want to just destroy somebody. And then there's those who want to sharpen someone, who want to help clarify a viewpoint because it's good for everybody, who at their best want to build up somebody, want to make someone better. Two categories, self-centered, other-centered. Now, if we are able to see this, we can save ourselves a lot of mental, uh, spiritual, and emotional energy. And I say that because self-centered critics often seem uh, content just to offer their critique, awful as it may be. So you can poke around on Facebook sometime, and these are the people, um, you can do this on Amazon too. They just write a scathing review of every book. You can like track people's reviews, and there's some people, they're like one star, one star, one star, one star. Um, All they want to do is offer something scathing. And then even more disheartening is the people who pop up who seem to like their comment. But here's the thing. If this is what they're there for, if they are self-centered in their critiques, then when they are can post it and when people like it, they have everything that they came for. Um, I'm often asked why I don't reply to comments uh, very often on Facebook. Uh, and there's really two reasons for that. Uh, first and foremost, I actually spend very little time on Facebook. I don't find it to be a very helpful place most of the time um, because there's just, well, (laughs) 
do I need to say anything other than Cambridge Analytica? Okay. So I just don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. Um, but second, most of the time I don't respond to people on Facebook is because when someone goes on the attack, when I spend some time and lean in to see the critic and they appear self-centered, um, I choose not to engage their comments. Uh, they said what they want to say. There are other people who support it. They like it and that's fine. They, um, and, and they have the place where they've been able to sound off and they have been heard. Um, now, how do you know which is which? How do you know is self-centered? How do you know other centered? Well, um, I would encourage us. We, we do have to make a judgment. Okay. It's a judgment call. And again, this is not demonizing the person. This is looking at their, their criticism. Is it self-centered? Are they just wanting to be heard? Or is it wanting to help others grow? And so I will take time when I do engage comments and criticism to read closely and see, are they engaging my work? Are they inviting me into dialogue? Are they asking me uh, to clarify myself so it would be helpful for them, myself, and others? Or are they just spouting their opinion and attacking me and deconstructing what I've done? Do they seem to be seeking dignified dialogue or are they on the attack? And, and quite honestly, if it's the latter, it's really not at that point about you at all. It's about them and you can let it be. Now, the other side, uh, my favorite kind of criticism, the most helpful kind of criticism comes from people who are others centered. Um, several months ago, I received an email from a person who was feeling frustrated and upset and they made it abundantly clear, but they did it in such a way where their frustration, they were saying to me, listen, you have a blind spot. You're not seeing this. And because you're not seeing this, I feel frustrated. And if I am emailing you about this blind spot, I guarantee you others are feeling the same way. And I think it's important for you to see this, to know this and be aware of it so that we can move forward. It was this very frustrated. They made that very clear, but also very intent on, I want to help you see something that you're obviously not seeing. There was no anger in the midst of the frustration. There was like, I should say there was no vitriol in the words. There was no, their words were not toxic at all. Um, but they were very direct. And what came through clearly was a deep concern and a desire to see something change for the betterment of everyone, including myself. It was not I'm frustrated with you, make it better. It was, you have a blind spot. It's not good. If you can see this, we're all going to be better off. And I'll tell you what, it was not only so refreshing to, <laughs> to receive an email like this. And by the way, I do get several emails like this. So don't hear me saying all oh, criticism is bad. Uh, I receive emails like this where it's constructive. Hey, I, I want to help you. I want to, to work together. Um, but it was, it was pleasant in a way, it was really pleasant to receive this criticism because I knew from the moment I heard it and read it that I had an opportunity to learn from her and work towards solutions and it was well worth it. And so we, we scheduled a time, we met together. Um, she pointed out things that honestly I had never considered. I, I never even, like I said, it was a blind spot. I hadn't seen it before. And it opened up a wonderful dialogue and it made me really curious about like, okay, wait, why am I, why do I have this blind spot? How is it that I've not seen this? Are there other people who knew uh, or are feeling this? Why haven't they said anything? Um, how can I address this in a way where I can own my stuff, which gives people then more permission to come into dialogue with me? I had all of these things um, that opened up in me and I made some changes. We made some changes. And as a result, it, it's been serving everyone in a more healthy way. Now, I don't share this to say that this is a credit to me. It's a credit to the critic. She did not come in like a, a stiff wind on a, on a cold day, right? Her words, no. It was, they were like a gentle breeze on a warm day. I mean, whoever grows through harsh words, right? No, no. Harsh words serve to drive us further into the behaviors that actually may need to be changed. If you're, if you want to criticize somebody in hopes that they will grow, don't use harsh words. If you use harsh words, the very thing you want to criticize actually can become worse, can become a bigger problem. Uh, we are far more likely to open up to words that encourage others and our kind because criticism, it, it, that's not helpful when it's harsh. 
Uh, my wife and I used to read Aesop's fables to our kids when they were young, and there's the story about the shepherd out on, out on a hillside, and the sun and the wind have a conversation about who can cause the shepherd to remove his cloak. And the wind says, oh, I'll do it. And so the wind goes first and the wind blows hard and, and the wind blows cold on the shepherd. And the harder and colder it blows, the tighter the shepherd grabs his cloak onto himself. And eventually the wind realizes, I'm not going to get the cloak off the shepherd. So then the sun says, well, I'll get the cloak off the shepherd. And the sun rises up into the sky, clearing out the clouds with the heat of her sun rays and shines down on the shepherd. And the shepherd throws off his cloak and lays it on the grass and basks in the sunshine. This is what we need to keep in mind when it comes to criticism. Are we a stiff wind or are we warm light that invites people to open up? Because in, in, for us who are receiving the criticism, if we can see our critic, we can learn then, like if they're a stiff wind or if they're, they're sunshine, we can learn where to spend our energy and we can experience in that then more growth through criticism because instead of responding to all of it, we can find the, the stuff that's helpful and in turn, we will grow even more through criticism. We can also see human beings on the other end of criticism. And rather than combat self-centered people, rather than go on the attack and anything else, we can actually just give them what they came for. We can allow them to be heard. They've been heard. People have liked their comments, however it is. Okay, thank you. The number of times people have come at me and criticized me unfairly, and I would just say to them, thank you for, for being willing to share that with me. That's it, done. You've given them what they came for. And then on the other end, we can open ourselves up to the other centered critics and allow their gifts to move us forward. So, whew, that is eight observations about criticism. And by the way, of course, this is by no means exhaustive. Uh, these are just some things that I am learning. Um, and I do hope that at least one of these will prove helpful for you, both when you receive criticism and when you offer criticism. I hope that it will take all of us, uh, help us take our next step together and how we respond to others and how we offer criticism to others. Because one thing I know is this, uh, and well, I guess maybe this is the ninth observation. Um, when you are willing to take risks, uh, when you're willing to ask hard questions, when you um, like set out on a journey, not knowing where you will end up, when you get curious, when you leave your tribe of origin, when you enter that space between, you will endure criticism. That is to be expected. Know that. And for me, uh, quite honestly, the day that I stop uh, being criticized, the day I stop receiving criticism, that actually may be the thing that tells me that I need to work harder and that I need to go deeper into myself and into my world. So with that, my friends, let me say again, thank you for the emails. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for helping me create content so that together we can all take our next step. That is what the Changing Faith Podcast is here for. And so, as always, until next time, much love and peace be with you.